Amen. Well, hey, good morning. Um, happy Father's Day to all you fathers in the room. Um, I became a father on Father's Day nine years ago, so my oldest was born on Father's Day. But let's go to the Lord in prayer before we open up God's Word together this morning. We come to you this morning as Father. Thank you that we get to call you that. Thank you that we get to reap the benefits of the adoption that is ours in Christ, that we are your sons and we are your daughters. Thank you that um, every good and perfect gift comes from the Father of lights. Thank you that even though we as evil, sinful human fathers know how to give good gifts to our children, how much more so you who give the Holy Spirit to those who ask. You are a good father. You're a prodigal father, a father who is kind and whose, whose patience and kindness leads us to repentance that draws us closer to yourself. You're a father who sent your only son, a sacrificial and selfless father, so that we, once again, could be called your sons and your daughters. We relish in that fact, and we worship you for that. This morning, Lord, I also want to intercede um, for all the fathers in the room, all the fathers in our community, in our country. God, we are so aware of how many trials and tribulations exist in our society because of fatherlessness, whether it's physical absence for, for various reasons or emotional, spiritual absence um, that we struggle with as earthly dads. God, we pray that you would be sufficient where we're not, um, knowing that our calling as dads is to reflect you. God, we fail so often, so frequently, and we just pray that your grace would be sufficient. You would be the wonderful counselor of our children, that they would come to know, as Jennifer said earlier, as every kid in this building would come to know you as their father, the person who provides them significance and security and protection and safety. And Lord, for all the fathers in the room, may you equip us. Um, maybe we didn't have great models. Some probably didn't. I pray that there'd be a, a, a restoration maybe of an image of the father for many families in this room that you, by mighty move of your spirit, would, would raise up a generation of men to be men of God to be fathers that lead people to you, God. We pray this on Jesus' name. Amen. All right. You guys can go ahead and have a seat for me this morning. Hey, good morning. Um, if you were with us last week, um, we, we had a special guest. We had Bill Fowler, the um, pastor of CBC Savannah, the, the church that planted us, that launched us, come down, and, and Bill preached for us about the scriptures. Um, but somehow, in so doing, he, he broke my microphone. Um, <laughs> So as someone who's used to preaching with my hands, I'm going to do a really good job, I hope, by God's grace, to hold the microphone in my mouth this morning. Um, but if you're new with us, let me kind of fill you in on where we are, make sure you're kind of up to speed with where we're headed this morning. Um, we as a church, we preach through books of the Bible. It's called expository preaching. We, we spent the first 37 weeks of our church in the book of Acts. Next week, I'm, I'm so excited, y'all. You have no idea how geeked out I am um, to open up the book Ezra and Nehemiah. And I said book. Because in the Hebrew Bible, they're one book. Um, it's in the Septuagint, which is the Greek version, and translated into English, where we split it up into two. So we're going to be studying the Old Testament book, Ezra and Nehemiah. So I can't, can't wait to dive in. But we really saw an opportunity in the five weeks bef bef you know, between Acts and Ezra and Nehemiah um, to make sure that, that we're on the same page about a few things, to make sure as a church that we're building on the proper foundation. I want your faith to be strong. I want the structure of our church to be strong. And to do that, we, may, we need to make sure we're on the same uh, or, or the, the most appropriate um, foundation. So in 1 Corinthians chapter 3, this was kind of the scripture that's been the baseline for this series. Paul says, according to the grace of God given to me, like a skilled master builder, I laid a foundation. 
and someone else is building upon it. He says, let each one take care then how he builds upon it. I take that as a personal challenge. That, that, that is my calling as the lead pastor and planter of this church to, to make sure we are building well, that we are building on the right foundation. And Paul says, no one can lay a foundation other than that which is laid, which is Jesus Christ. So let me give you a little fly over the last five weeks. So week one, we tried to lay a foundation, which is the deepest part of this foundation begins with the character of God. The deepest part of our foundation begins with who is God? What is he like? And we, we specifically studied his holiness, that God is perfect in power, in love, and in purity, that he is utterly unapproachable by us because of our sin. We are impure, he is not. So we cannot come into his presence. In fact, to come into a holy God's presence would mean you would be consumed on the spot. The only proper response for you is what we saw in Isaiah chapter 6, Isaiah hitting his face saying, I'm undone. I am undone before the holiness of God. I am unworthy to live. Pretty somber kickoff to that series, but we pick back up week two where we saw the good news that although God is unapproachable by us in his holiness, he in his love and his mercy actually made a way for us to approach him. He sent his son Jesus to, to pay the penalty for your sin, and in taking your sin, he actually gives you his righteousness. So now God can be approached by us because we have been atoned for. The word atoned means covered. We, we are covered by Christ. We can come into the presence of God because of the atonement of Jesus Christ. In week three, Coleman took it a step further and said, so what does that mean for us as the church? Well, in 2 Timothy, it means that we should depart from iniquity. If we have been covered in Christ, that we should no longer live unholy lives, we should begin to live holy lives as our Father is holy. And then last week, if, if you were, had the pleasure of being here, Bill shared that as a church, as, as the people of God, we're built on the foundation of the prophets and the apostles. That's from Ephesians 2. We're built on the foundation of the scriptures. If you haven't heard that sermon, we, we have it up online. I, I'd encourage you to go back and listen to it because you know by now we are community Bible church. We believe this to be the authority. We live our lives like this underneath its authority at all times. And what Bill shared with for a few minutes last week, if, if you're here with us, is that you can trust it. You, you can trust this book. It is trustworthy because its source is God that it's inspired, that it's God-breathed, that although men, 40 different ones may have written it, that they were carried along by the Holy Spirit as they wrote it. It is the inspired word of God, which means we can trust it. 1,500 years, 40 different authors, God's preserved it for us, primarily so that we can know him. We want to know God, we have to get into this book, we have to understand it. But, but church, here's where I'm going to go this morning. As much as I want you to be a people of the book, as much as I want all of us to know this book, it is not enough to know it. We have to do it. We have to apply it. We have to obey it. So if you have your Bibles, why don't you turn with me to Luke chapter 6. And as you turn there, let me give you a little background on myself. Uh, I was raised in church, um, but I spent a majority of my church days engaged in competitive games of hangman on the builder rather than actually listening to what a preacher had to say. I, I just, wasn't, just wasn't interested. I, I, I was interested in other things. And by the age of 13, I had just concluded this thing isn't for me, this whole church thing. In fact, the community and the friendships that I have outside of church, but really within sports, is much greater. It, it meets all my needs. I don't need what they have to offer over here. And y'all, that, that false conclusion, that wrong conclusion led to some pretty dire consequences for me all throughout high school lived into sin, and, and there are consequences to sin. But on July 3rd, 2007, about two weeks before I was to move to the Holy Land, the University of Georgia, for those that are new, okay. Um, 
I was invited to a church camp. Um, a buddy of mine invited me, and, and it was going to be one of the last few times a lot of us as friends were able to see each other before we moved to our universities. And he invited me to this church camp. And, and y'all, you, maybe you've had a moment like this, but although there were probably 3,000 people in the room that night, I thought I was the only one. Like, like the, he was speaking at me. Like it was just this weight, this burden of conviction. It was like the words of Scripture were just pounding me in the heart. But, but I was obstinate, very stubborn. I don't like to lose things. And I was wrestling, resisting. But after about 30 minutes, I, I hit my knees just uncontrollably, emotionally, just going, all right, God, I'm in. I, I give my life to you. But what I want to share with you about that is really this part. When I stood up after that moment, you know, the, the band was back up, and they were, like, leading everybody through a song of response. And, and I noticed, though, pretty quickly that the song that I was singing wasn't the song that was, was on the screen. Like somewhere from my, my deep Southern Baptist roots, I was singing this old-time hymn, I Surrender All. Right, you know that song? You know, it says, all to Jesus I surrender. All to him I freely give. Verse 2 says, all to him I surrender. Make me Savior, wholly thine. That was the prayer that was kind of coming out of my life that day. Was I, wa- I want to give you all. I want to give you all of me, not part of me. You are worthy of it all. And church, let me just just go ahead and say from the get-go, like he deserves no less. For what he has done for us, he deserves all of us. But the truth is, there have been so many seasons in my life, so many moments in my life, so many years of my life where, where I haven't given him all of me, right? I've reserved part of me for myself. I've, I've kind of held out or I've held back. And what we're gonna see today is if that's you, maybe you've given Jesus parts of you, maybe you're willing to follow him in some areas of your life, but not other areas of your life, that, that, that fractional, compartmentalized, maybe unintegrated Christian faith, what Jesus is going to say to us this morning is going to be hard to hear. So he's going to say, you're, you're a fool. You're building your life on sand. The foundation that you have isn't going to last. You've got to be hearers of his word and doers of the word, and not just some of them, all of them. So let's look at our text today. Luke chapter 6, verse 46. Jesus says, Why do you call me Lord, Lord, and not do what I tell you? Everyone who comes to me and hears my words and does them, I'll show you what he's like. He's like a man building a house who dug deep and laid the foundation on the rock. And when a flood arose, the stream broke against that house and could not shake it because it had been well built. But the one who hears and does not do them is like a man who built a house on the ground without a foundation. When the stream broke against it, immediately it fell, and the ruin of that house was great. That's it. That's our text today. Church, what we have to be is be doers of the word. The last piece of our foundation is to be doers of the word. So for all my alliteration and type A people, I got three points for you, okay? First thing we're going to see is the rebuke of Jesus. Second thing we'll see is the responsibility, the the, the instructions in which he is telling us we need to be responsible for. And finally, we'll look at the right reasons. So the rebuke, the responsibility, and the reason. So let's go back to our text. Look at the rebuke. Luke chapter 6, verse 46. He says, why do you call me Lord, Lord, and not do what I tell you to do? All right, what's going on in context here? Jesus is wrapping up his famous sermon the, the Sermon on the Mount. He's, he's coming to a close here, and he's saying, hey, why are you calling me Lord, Lord, and not doing what I tell you to do? So who is he talking to? Well, what we know from Matthew is this is a massive crowd of people. 
He has a huge gathering that has come to hear his, his sermon. And at the end of his sermon, they're actually astonished at his teaching. Matthew chapter 7 says that they're astonished because he's teaching as one who has authority, not one like the scribes. So they're acknowledging this, this man's different. He's got some authority. And, and really what that means is that the scribes, when they would teach, would always give kind of credence to their words by appealing to the authority of others. Okay, you follow me? It's like the first century name, uh, name dropping. They would say, hey, uh, according to Rabbi Shammai, this scripture means this. This is how the scribes would teach. According to Rabbi Hillel, these scriptures mean this. Well, Jesus, all throughout his ministry, never appealed to the authority of others. Never. And his audience picked up on that. His audience began to hear, hang on, he, he's teaching as if he is the ultimate authority on these scriptures. That's what that text means. They're acknowledging, they're becoming aware, this man is, is a presuming to have some authority. And Jesus says, okay, you got that part, right? You call me Lord, Lord. That word Lord just means master, sovereign, ruler. But Jesus is saying, well, why are you calling me master and sovereign and ruler? And yet you're living your lives as if you're still the master, sovereign, and ruler. Jesus in his teaching was establishing, I am the ultimate authority. And they were acknowledging that with their lips, but they were disregarding that with their lives. How easy is that for us to do? Don't, don't we do this all the time? Yeah, I'm a Christian. I, I go to church, you know, at least a couple times a month. I, I do some certain things. I, Jesus is, oh yeah, he's my Lord. He's my Savior. But how often do we not do what he asks us to do? That's a pretty strong rebuke that Jesus is giving us here. Church, acknowledging that you're a Christ follower with your lips is not sufficient. It's not enough. In, in, in fact, Jesus would say, it's, it's definitely not enough. You can't just call me Lord with your lips and then live in such a way that it totally contradicts what you've just said. In the, in the book of James, James, Jesus' half-brother, he said it this way. He says, you know what? You believe in God, great. Congratulations, good for you. You do well. That's what James says. You believe in God, you do well. But guess what, guys? The demons believe in God. And not only do they believe in God, at least they shudder. That's from James chapter 2. At least their belief moves them to some kind of action. We could be worse than that if we say we believe with our lips, but we don't live for him with our lives. Church, this unintegrated, compartmentalized, or, or fractional faith, whatever you want to call it, will always result in the rebuke of Jesus. It's not what he wants for us. He wants all of you. He wants your life, not just your lips. It's what he came to purchase. In Matthew chapter 21, the, the Pharisees were really testing Jesus' authority. They were saying, hey, you know, on whose authority are you doing all these miracles? Jesus gave them a parable. And in this parable, y'all, it's pretty clear what he's trying to communicate. Matthew chapter 21, he says this. Hey, guys, what do you think? A man had two sons. He went to the first and he said, go and work in the vineyard today. First son answered, I will not. But afterward, he changed his mind and he went. He went to the other son and did the same. And the second son said, I go, sir, but he did not go. Here's the question Jesus posed. Which of the two did the will of his father? It's not, that's, that's a real question you can answer. First one. And the Jews said the same. They were like, hey, the first one. And Jesus is like, yeah, you're getting the point. That's what I want for my children. That's what God wants. I don't want just your lip service. I want you to back it up with the things that you do. What Jesus is clearly communicating is that it's not, it's not enough to acknowledge his lordship with your lips. You've got to live in such a way that you walk it out, that you back it up, that you give him all of you with your lives. So, see the rebuke. 
And church, the rebuke of Jesus here is, is really intended for your good. Hebrews says that, that all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant, right? Amen? And my kids would say the same thing. They don't like it. Don't like the discipline. Discipline is painful rather than pleasant in that moment, but it's intended to later yield a peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. So when we come and we, we get convicted and we hear the rebuke of Jesus, church, that is good for you. Don't run from that. Embrace that because that is for your good, is to help us later, is training us in, in righteousness later. So see the rebuke. If, if you're feeling convicted, you're going, you know, that's true for me. I acknowledge Jesus with my lips, but I don't obey him with my life. Like, good. Feel that rebuke. Sit in that rebuke because the good thing about Jesus is he doesn't just rebuke us. He tells us what's next. He gives us the responsibility, and that's point number two. What are the responsibilities? Luke chapter six, verse 47. Jesus says, everyone who comes to me and hears my words and does them. All right, let me break that down. There are three pieces of responsibility, he says. The first one is this, everyone who comes to me. And, and this is kind of like a, like a duh moment because we can't do what Jesus wants us to do if we don't hear what he wants us to do, right? It, but we can't hear what he wants us to do if we don't come to him, if we don't get close enough to him to actually hear what he wants of us to do. Right? So it's kind of a duh moment, but, but really what I want to say on this is that how we come to Jesus is really important. How we come to him, the posture of our heart in coming near to him is really, really important in order to hear him, in order to know what he requires of us, what to do from him. In John chapter 6, there's this massive group of people that came to Jesus. It's 5,000 men to be exact. So that's 5,000 men, not including the women, not including the children. 5,000 men came to Jesus. They were interested in what he had to say. They were interested in what he had to do. And Jesus looked on them. He had compassion. They were sheep without a shepherd. They, they were hungry. They were far from town. They didn't have any food. So what did Jesus do for them? He took five little loaves of bread, two fish, broke them, and fed every single one of them. They feasted out there in the wilderness. To the point where at the end of that miracle, they took up all the remainder of fish and loaves and they had 12 baskets left over. Jesus met their need. Jesus fed their bellies. But in John chapter 6, after that moment, what we read is that the people acknowledged his authority. They saw who he was and they wanted to force him to become their king. They wanted to take him and say, you're our king now. Which, if you know anything about the people of Israel, they were waiting on a messianic king, a king that would redeem them and save them and fight for them. And they see this guy can do all kinds of stuff. We want him to be our king. Jesus, perceiving their thoughts, though, escaped them. Got out of Dodge. You know how he did that? Walked on water. Unbelievable. Got away from them by walking across the Sea of Galilee. The next morning, the crowds wake up and go, where'd he go? Heard that he went to the other sea to Galilee. They had to walk around because they couldn't walk on water. They walk around. They see Jesus. Jesus sees them approaching and starts to rebuke them. He says, why are you coming here? What are you looking for? And they said, sir, we, we want some more bread. <laughs> and, and Jesus began to tell them, stop looking for things that satisfy you in this life alone. You need the bread that is eternal. You need eternal bread. And, and the crowd said, give us that. We want this bread. And Jesus says, I'm that bread. Eat my flesh and drink my blood. That's what you need. That's, that's pretty radical, right? And when the crowds heard this, y'all, the crowds that had come to him heard this, it says they were very discouraged, and many even of his disciples turned back and no longer walked with Jesus. They left him. They departed him. Why? They had just seen him feed all of them. They had just witnessed his authority. They had just, they just heard about him walking across the waves, walking on water, but yet when they heard him say this, they departed him. Why? Because they came wrongly. 
You know what coming wrongly to Jesus looks like? Simply coming to have your needs met. I just want what I want. My needs, my desires are front and center. Jesus, you're here to meet my needs. That's how we view God, isn't it? We want him to do what we want him to do. It's like, we, like a bellhop almost. Let me ring that bell. You come and attend to me, or like a good therapist. Maybe he can listen to me for a little while. Don't really engage in my life, but like hear me out. Validate what I feel, and then I'll come back to you whenever I need you. That's tends that we tend to treat, treat God. But, but if we come, y'all, with only our needs front and center, with only our desires front and center, we're, we're, we're missing out. We're missing out on what he actually has for us. They came to get their needs met, not to know the Son of God. I like to say it this way. We, oftentimes we come to, to God seeking his hands, not his face. Y'all know the difference? We come seeking his hands. Give me, give me, give me, give me, give me. We don't come to actually know who he is. Y'all, this is a relationship. We want to come to God in such a way to know who he is. So what does this look like practically? How often do you miss hearing the words of Christ and consequently obeying what he has to say because you sit down in the morning with with your Bible and your cup of coffee, because that's essential. Can I get an amen? Okay. Sit down with your cup of coffee, sit down with your Bible, and instead of actually coming to know Jesus, you're just thinking about all the emails that are awaiting you. How easy is that to do? You sit down and you're like, okay, I want to read today. I want to keep up with this Bible reading plan that the church keeps throwing down my throat every Sunday. You know, I want to keep up. And you just kind of do it in a way to like check it off the to-do list. And we walk away from that time not really knowing any more about God. We haven't really come to him dependently, desperately, hungrily to know who he is. We've just kind of come to kind of get it done or we've come to get our own needs met. Church, I wonder what your walk with Christ would look like if you began to come more humbly more desperately, more dependently, more in, in alignment to know who he is, not just what he can do for you. I really believe if we can learn to come to Christ like that, the structure of your faith will grow strong. All right, I'll stop talking about that. First responsibility, come to Jesus. Look back at our text, verse 47. Everyone who comes to me and hears my words. All right, second responsibility, hears what? The words of Christ. So in the immediate context, right, he just is concluding his Sermon on the Mount. So what he's saying is, guys, if you can hear this, I want you to come to me and hear me on things like this. Be merciful. Do not judge. Stop dealing with the speck in your spouse's eye. Deal with the log that is in your own. And on and on. You start seeing more and more of what his Sermon on the Mount is. That's the immediate context. But if you were here with us last week, One of the things that Bill mentioned is that all of Scripture is inspired by God, right? All of Scripture, the the totality, even the Song of Songs, is inspired by God, breathed out by God, sourced in God. So what Bill said last week is so important for us because so often we're tempted to elevate some Scriptures above others. It's easy for us to elevate, well, Jesus said this. But church, if all Scripture's source is in God, it means that the Apostle Paul and the Apostle Peter's words in Scripture are equivalent in authority with the words of Christ. Does that sound blasphemous? Sounds a little weird, doesn't it? But, but the Spirit of Christ is what penned every, every word of Scripture. So that means all of Scripture is equal in authority as Jesus' Sermon on the Mount. All of Scripture. So when Jesus is saying, hey, everyone who comes to me and hears my words, he's not just saying the Sermon on the Mount. He's saying, come to me and hear all of Scripture. Come to me and hear this. These are my words. Eat of this. These are the words of God. All Scripture is God-breathed 
Every author, as Peter says, was carried along by the Holy Spirit. There's no hierarchy. There's no, this book isn't more important than that book. All of it comes together so that we can know God. So when Jesus says, everyone who comes to me and hears my words, for us, we need to come to him to hear scripture. Uh, church, I love devotionals. I love secondary resources, my utmost for its highest, streams in the desert. There have been seasons of my life where that has been really supplemental to my faith, but the emphasis on those things is supplemental. They're secondary. Do not forfeit the opportunity to wake up and spend time in this and this alone. To get to know God, this is the words of Christ. These are the words of God. You don't want man's opinion. This is why we preach expositionally. I, I, I mean, I have some ideas. I have some opinions on some things. You don't want to hear a church share my opinions. You want to hear the words of God. This is authoritative. This is why we want to preach through books of the Bible. Okay, I'll stop talking about that. So when we hear, we come to hear the words of Scripture. But there's one more thing I want to say about hearing. Hearing in the Greek here, hearing the words of Scripture is like more than just hearing something audibly. It's, it's listening. Like, you know the difference, right? Like, you can hear something Husbands, you know, and then there's times where you can listen. Like this happens all the time. I come home, I'm tired, my mind's a little tired, but I really wanted to finish reading this one article. So I, I kind of come in, I say hey to the kids, say hey to Annie, and I kind of sit down on the couch and I start reading my article, I'm trying to finish my article. And my kids are all talking to me at the same time at a decibel that's illegal. <laughs> and, it, and it's overwhelming. Am I the only one? It is overwhelming. Like I'm someone who craves silence and solitude. It is overwhelming, and they're all talking, and, and, you know, and, and in my subconscious, when I'm listening to, to my article, and I'm kind of hearing them in the subconscious, I know they asked a question. Like, somewhere in there, there was a question, and what do I do? I just kind of, yeah, yeah, that sounds great. You know, and then all of a sudden, they're quiet. You know, and you're like, wait, wait, what did you ask? Uh, Dad, we were going to go play with a lighter fluid, you know? <laughs> You know, and it's like, wait, what did you say? No. You know, the answer is no, you cannot do that. And then they're all frustrated because I said yes to begin with, but now I'm saying no. And you know the difference. It's the first time I heard kind of like voices. The second time I heard their meaning. That's what the Greek is talking about here. When you come to Jesus, we're not just to hear. We're, not, we're, we're, to, we're to attend to. That's what that word was. Give, give some attention, some energy, some work, some effort to try to comprehend the meaning of Jesus' words, not just the words alone. In Matthew chapter 13, Jesus makes this clear in the parable of the soils. You know, he says the good soil are the ones who hear the word and understand it. They're the ones that bear fruit, some 100-fold, some 60-fold, some 30-fold. The people who bear fruit, the soil of fruit, of faith for you, if you're good soil, are those who hear his words and comprehend it understand it. So church, it, it requires work. It requires effort. Husbands, you know, it requires a little bit of effort. You got to put your phone aside and you got to give some attention to it. Your phone is one of the reasons we struggle to come to him and hear from him. I, full disclosure, it's why I have a flip phone. That in and of itself, it's not just because when my kids are talking to me, I was on my phone all the time, although that was true. The reason I have a flip phone is because I sit down to have my quiet time. You know what I do? Read about the Georgia Bulldogs. It's been good reading. But that's what happens. I'd get so, and then all of a sudden at six o'clock, everybody's up. Breakfast starts. I just lost it. It's gone. That time is gone. It's so easy to get distracted because I'm not really listening. I'm hearing, but I'm not listening. Church, fruit comes from those who hear and understand. So we come, we come desperate, we come dependent, we come to know God, and we come to hear His words. And again, to hear is to study. 
to give attention to it. And, and y'all, this is important, just practically. Like, it's practically wise of you to study Scripture. And I'll tell you why. Because there's a lot of commands in Scripture that are clear. They're like no-brainers, right? Do not murder. What's he saying? You know, it's like, okay, I got it. Do not murder. Let me give you one, though, that'll throw you for a loop, okay? Five times in the New Testament. So sometimes people say, well, that was in the Old Testament. I don't have to deal with that. We're not going to go too deep today there. Five times in the New Testament, four from the Apostle Paul, one from the Apostle Peter, he gives this command. Greet one another with a holy kiss. All right? For the love of God, <laughs> study that. Like, give yourself to that. The last thing I would want is for all our guests to, to feel like that church is weird. That is cultish. You know, what was trying to happen? If you would study that and you give attention to it, you would realize that what was culturally appropriate for first century Jewish Christians may not be, is definitely not culturally appropriate for us. Now, in some cultures, that still exists, right? France is weird. We lived in North Africa, right, for three years as missionaries. In North Africa, you would shake hands and you would right cheek, left cheek, right cheek, left cheek. That's how you greet each other. To do right cheek, you got to go left. Just a heads up. Because if you don't, you, know, you learn, and we did. You learn. It was bad. But church, if you study and you apply yourself to so going, what is, what is the authors of Scripture, what is the Spirit of God saying in this text? He's saying that brothers and sisters in Christ ought to love each other. When you see one another in Publix and Food Line, and I get it, you don't duck each other. You don't go, oh, i got time for that. That person's a talker. You know. You know, and... That's not what we do. We're brothers and sisters in Christ. Our fondness when one another trumps that. You, you greet each other. And, and a fist bump will suffice. You know, a handshake, whatever that looks like, is culturally appropriate. So church, just, just study, really apply, really ask that question. What is God saying in this? What is the intent of this passage? What is the intent of this command? But sometimes they're clear. They, they just don't feel good, don't they? They just don't feel good. And we're going to get there. I'm getting ahead of myself. So our responsibility so far, come to Jesus Hear him, really hear him by understanding the meaning of it. And then finally, look at verse 47, our third responsibility. Everyone who comes to me and hears my words and does them. Uh, church, there's really no need to spend a lot of time here because in the Greek, I studied it, does them just means does them. Like Jesus isn't being figurative here. He's not being rhetorical. He's not being facetious. He's not offering you suggestions. He's saying, do them. Like, hear my words and do what I'm telling you to do. Church, I think this is where our, our faith breaks down. Like, this is where our walk with God breaks down. Like, like, coming to Jesus, we're good with that. I'm here. I'm here to worship. I'll lift my hands even. I would love to say, see some more hand raising in our church, but, you know, I'm here. I'm here. Come, Jesus. I'm here. We want to hear from him. I want a word from the Lord. I want him to speak into this situation. I want to know if I should take this job. We should buy this house. If I should play the lottery this week. We all want words from the Lord. But when he speaks and says, all right, give all that you have to the poor and then come follow me. That's when we're like, that's radical. That's too extreme. You know, we immediately start backpedaling out of this thing because it's hard. It's in the obedience. It's in the doing of the word where our faith becomes so fractional. And, I, and before the end of the day, I'm going to give you two reasons why I think we struggle in obeying Christ. But let me go ahead and give you one now. I think we struggle to obey him because we simply believe he's not good. Like, we just don't believe he's good. We don't believe that he wants what's good for us. We don't believe that his commands are good for us. In fact, we believe that his commands and what he wants for us is 
burdensome. It's oppressive. It's robbing me of the good life. It's keeping me from the things that I want. He doesn't want what's good for me. I think we struggle to obey him because that's what we believe. And y'all, on a day like Father's Day, there's some valid reasons we struggle to trust God. I, I, I see this more than anything else as a pastor. We struggle to fellowship and commune with God, our Father. You know why? Because a lot of you have really horrible relationships with your earthly dads. God created dads to reflect him as a father. Now, we're going to fail, always, inevitably fail. But even in our failure, we're pointing to the fact that he never does. But so many people in our society grew up without dads for various reasons. You know, I mean, some are, some are hard reasons, some are tough reasons. It's just being part of a sinful world. But we take our picture of our earthly dads and we, we plant that onto God and we struggle to come to him. Right? Am I touching some nerves here? It exists in all of us. So we believe that, that he's not a good, good father. We, we believe, and I say this a lot, we believe he's more like Santa. He sees us when we're sleeping. He knows when we're awake. He knows when we've been good and bad. So you better, you, you better be good. That's how we view God. He's a taskmaster. He's sitting up in heaven. He's keeping tally. What you been doing bad this week? He's writing it down. He's ready to punish me. He's ready to pounce on me. If we were honest, I think that we would say often that's what we believe about God. So when we have his commands, we don't believe he, he wants what's good for us. We want to obey that because we don't trust him. But church, 1 John chapter 5, verse 3 says, this is the love of God, that we keep his commandments. And his commandments are not burdensome. His commands are not burdensome. They're, they're not oppressive. They're not to rob you. Now, it may feel like it sometimes, but, but in the same way that me as a dad, right, my commands for them are not burdensome. Me politely telling them, no, son, you can't play with lighter fluid today. That, that's not oppressive. That's not burdensome. That's not to rob them. But in my love and in my wisdom, I know what's best for them. They may not believe that. They may, they may not feel that in that moment. They may hate me and stomp away from me in that moment. But if I were, if I were that always, like how many dads in the room play Dr. No? That's what I call it. I'm Dr. No. 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 You cannot do that. That's my role in our house all the time. No, 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 no. You're giving no's all the time. But if I was only Dr. No, if that was the only responsibility that I took as a dad, you know what my kids would eventually do? Rebel. Because rules without relationship always equate rebellion. Always. When I give them rules and you better not do that, not do that, not do that, at some point they're going to rebel. But I'm not that way. I'm not a perfect dad, but I, but I can tell you my kids at least know my heart for them. It's love. It's for their good. It's for their life. And if they can come to know that part of my heart, it'll be easier to receive my commands. Now, i got a couple kids. That it's hard. Some are rule followers. But it gets easier, doesn't it? When you know the heart of the Father, when you know the heart of God, it's easier to trust that the commands are for our good. So, church, let me say this clearly. If you perceive God's commands or requirements of you to be burdensome, the issue isn't with the commands. The issue is probably with your view of God. You following that? If you see the commandments of Scripture as burdensome, as oppressive, as robbing you from life, the issue isn't with the commands. It's probably with your perception of God. It's with your view of God. Because Deuteronomy 6 verse 24 says that the Lord commanded us to do all of these statutes for our good always. 
And this is why, and I won't belabor this, but this is why the foundation of our faith has to begin with a correct view of God. It begins in that week one of foundations. Who is God? Who is he? We can never grow weary as his children in cultivating a knowledge of who he is. So when you come to scripture, it isn't just to go, what do you want me to do today? That's part of it. It's to go, who are you? I want to know you. I want to know who you are so I can come to trust you so that when you say do something, I'm ready and I'm willing because I've, known, I've come to know you. So we have the rebuke. We have the responsibility. Let me close this morning by talking about the reason. Like why? Why should we obey God? Jesus spent a lot of time, and in our text today we saw it, Jesus spent a lot of time rebuking people who heard his words but didn't obey them, right? But what's crazy about Jesus is he also spent a lot of time rebuking people who obeyed what God wanted to do but who didn't really understand him. Those were called hypocrites. In Matthew, he, he calls them whitewashed tombs. On the outside, they're, they're pretty. Their deeds look pretty good, but, but on the inside, in their heart, it's, it's just dead. Jesus called them uh, deceived dishes. Clean. They, 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 they're unclean. Inside of that cup, inside of that cup is just greed and self-indulgence. That's what Matthew says in his gospel. What's easy to do is to become dutiful. To leave here this morning and go, you know what, it's right, I gotta do better. I gotta work harder. I gotta, I gotta do more of what God's called me to do. But you could do that in the wrong, for the wrong reason and just be equally as bad. You can cast out demons in his name. You can heal the sick in his name. You can raise the dead in his name. And Jesus could still look at you and say, get away from me, I never knew you. Isn't that terrifying? So we don't want our duty for him to be driven by the wrong reason. So what is the right reason? If you have your Bibles, I want you to flip with me to John. John chapter 14. So you got, you're in the New Testament. We're already in Luke. It's Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Just one book over. John chapter 14. In, in verse 15, this is what we read. If you love me, you will keep my commandments. Look at verse 21. Whoever has my commandments and keeps them, he it is who loves me. Look at verse 23. Jesus answered, if anyone loves me, he will keep my word. A little bit of context here. Jesus is telling this to his disciples 12 hours before he gave us the greatest demonstration of love that the world has ever seen. Right before he's going to the cross, he's sitting with his closest disciples, and he says three times, if you love me, you will obey me. If you keep reading in that paragraph, you'll see statements like this. Jesus said, if you love me, you will obey me, and then my Father and I will come and make our home with you. We will come and manifest our love for you. And I don't, I don't want you to mishear that. So I've studied this. I'm just going to let you piggyback, okay, on the study that I've done in this text. Jesus isn't saying, if you love me, then we're going to love you. That's not what Jesus is saying. It, it, it closely reads that, but you're misunderstanding because Jesus is not contradicting what he has said in John 3, 16. God so loved the world that he gave his only son. He's not saying, hey, do certain things and then I'm gonna love you. That's not the right motivation. We do not do things for Jesus to earn his love, to earn his praise, to earn his acceptance, to earn his salvation. This is not obedience-based salvation, but because of our relationship with our earthly dads, how easy is that to slip into? Dads, how guilty are we? Praising our kids when they do well and silent when they perform poorly. What does that teach somebody? 
Well, listen, man, you're loved when you, when you perform well. It's probably the greatest thing we as Americans struggle with in our view of God. We think we, think we got to perform to earn God's love. It happens all the time. But church, that's not what God's saying. That's not what Jesus is saying. The love of God will always precede our love for him. We love God. Why? Because he first loved us. His love will always precede our love. Jesus is not saying, earn my love. But y'all, religious people everywhere, churches, mosques, synagogues, religious people everywhere will try to teach this. That, that if you give a little bit, God will give more. If you can do certain things, God will bless you. He'll pour out his favor on you. It's obedience-based religion. It's, it's legalism. It's let me shackle you to a bunch of do's and a bunch of don'ts. But church, when legalism trumps love, inside that church is dead. You ever been there? You ever felt that? It's just a bunch of do's just going through the motion. There's no life. There's no joy. There's no authenticity. It's not love. It, it's legalism. So, so I, don't, I don't want you to hear that we obey Jesus so that he will love us. No, he, he demonstrated his love for you even while you were still a sinner by going to the cross for you. His love will always precede your love, but the right reason that we want to obey Jesus is love. It's because we love him. If you love him, you will obey him. So here's the second reason, and I'll, and I'll close this. The second reason we struggle to obey him, it's pretty easy, but it's hard to hear. We just tend to love other things more than God, Right? Jesus says, if you love me, you will obey me. Well, I'm not obeying you right now. That probably means I'm not loving you. It, it means that we love other things more than we love God. We tend to give our affections to th other things than God. And church, I said this earlier, God's commands for you are not burdensome. They're not oppressive. But I did not say they're not costly. You tracking? The commands of Christ are costly. You want to follow Jesus? You want to do what Jesus would have you to do? It is going to cost you. It's going to cost you people. Friends, family, coworkers, popularity is going to cost you possessions. Keeping up with the Joneses won't be for you anymore. He's not going to ask you to accrue all your wealth. He's going to ask you to start giving it away. It's going to cost you your pride. When people hate you, you know what you have to do? Love them. I didn't like that. It's not the school I grew up in. People persecute you, you pray for them. People hurt you, you forgive them. That, that's following Jesus, y'all. That's radical. That is costly. It is going to cost you people. It's going to cost you possessions. It's going to cost you pride. But every time you come across his commands and you begin to weigh the cost, that in that moment, y'all, it's nothing more and it's nothing less than a test of your affection. You, are you with me? When you come across the commands of Christ and you begin to weigh, is that what I'm going to do? Am I going to obey that? In that moment, that question of obedience or disobedience is nothing more and nothing less than a test of your affections. It is going to reveal what you love most, either Jesus or the things that you want, either Jesus or the world. So here's the application for you. If you struggle in obeying Jesus, please do not leave here today going, I just got to work harder. I just, got to, I just got to apply myself more. I, I, got to be, I got to be like the spiritual version of David Goggins. You know what I mean? Anybody read his stuff? It's just work harder, grind more, just go harder. It won't hurt. That's not what we do in our faith. We don't apply ourselves like that. It's not work harder. Please don't leave here with that application. Because here's the application. If you love him, you will obey him. So don't focus on obeying more. Focus on what? Loving more. 
Focus on loving him more. Grow deeper in your love for Jesus and obedience will get easier. So how do we do that? How do you, how do you, how do you love Jesus more? It's, it's, well, let me just read what he says. Hey, come to me. Hear my words. Come to me. When you spend time with Jesus, you begin to hear what he has to say. Your affection for him will grow because he's good. And you know what? It's really easy to love something that is absolutely and purely lovely. That's our Savior. That's Christ. And you fall deeper in love with Jesus, you'll begin to obey him. So come to Jesus. Hear from him. Obey him. And let me conclude by telling you what you will be like. If that's you, you'll be like a man that's built a house, who dug deep and laid the foundation on the rock. And when the floods come, the streams break against your house, it will not be shaken because your faith has been well built. That's our prayer. That's what we want for you. We want you to have a faith that is well built. And it comes from coming to him, hearing him, and obeying him. So let me pray for us as we move into a song of response. Father, we thank you so much for your word. Thank you for your rebuke. Lord, I pray that you would continue to dismantle fake Christianity. I'm over it. God, I'm tired of it. Our world is over it. We're tired of nominal Christianity where we are fractional in our faith and and really our faith has nothing to do with the real world or our real lives. Dismantle it, God. May we no longer be a people of God that is fake, that that is allegiant to you in name only, that's willing to say, yeah, he's my Lord, but he has nothing to do with my life. God, I pray that you would just rebuke us. We, we fail so often in giving you lip service, but, but not surrendering all to you. And Lord, I pray that you would begin by inviting us to come. Thank you that invitation is open, that that door is open. Come. That we can come to you. I, I pray that you teach us to come well, come dependent, come without distraction, come desperate, come ready to know who you are. I pray for the strength for our church to set their phones aside to carve out a little bit of time apart from email, apart from the calendar, apart from the meetings, apart from all that has to get done. Spend time with you. That's what we were created for. And I pray that we would hear you, we'd study, that we'd understand what you would have us to do and that we would do it, not because we want to do our duty, but because we love you. Church, help us to surrender all to you. All to Jesus we surrender. All to you we freely give. May you have all of our lives. In Jesus' name, amen.